I'm Alka Kurian, host of the new podcast, South Asian Films and Books. I'm also a faculty at the University of Washington, Bothell, teaching film, literature, gender and human rights. In this first season of South Asian Films and Books, I'm going to look at how South Asian writers and filmmakers explore some of the major issues and help us make sense of the world that we inhabit. From politics to culture, each episode looks at a topic that impacts and shapes the lives of people living in South Asia and its diasporas. This is South Asian Films and Books, an original podcast broadcast from Seattle. Subscribe to new South Asian Films and Books as soon as possible so you don't miss a single episode. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Fatima Bhutto, a writer, columnist, and a cultural critic. Bhutto comes from one of the most illustrious Pakistani families. She's the granddaughter of former Pakistani Prime Minister Zulfikar Ali Bhutto. Raised in Syria and Karachi, Fatima Bhutto has a BA from Barnard College, New York, and an MA from the School of Oriental and African Studies, London. Bhutto has written several books, memorable amongst which is Song of Blood, Songs of Blood and Sword. Bhutto is in Seattle today to read from her recently launched book, New Kings of the World, Dispatches from Bollywood, Dizzy and K-Pop. In her book, Bhutto makes a claim about new cultural politics, where former metropolitan cultural products have been losing appeal among large sections of people in the non-Western world. An argument that resonates very much with Stuart Hall's contention about the declining privilege of United Kingdom. And this has happened as a result of the rise of new forms, rhythms, and impetuses in the globalizing process. Bhutto makes the same claim about American cultural products. I'm so delighted to talk to you, Fatima. It's such a pleasure and such an opportunity, such a great opportunity. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, So could you talk about the genesis of your book? Well, I would say that it it came from this exhaustion um, of living outside the Western world and just feeling tired by the fact that we're always placed in this secondary peripheral uh, vantage point, whereas if you're sitting outside the Western world, it certainly doesn't look to you that the West is the center or that it remains an authority of any kind. And I wanted to turn away from that idea that the West is first, the West is the best, and to look at the what is dynamic and exciting in terms of global pop culture. And as far as I can tell, that's not coming from the West. It hasn't been coming from the West for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what is really fascinating about your book is the ways in which you embed Um, the rise of this global popular culture within a meticulously researched historical, political, geopolitical, and economic context. Mm -hmm. For example, in India, you locate the shift in Bollywood cinema against some of the, or the rise or the construction of Bollywood cinema against some of the key political moments Mm -hmm. in the country. For example, the 1947 partition, the 1990s nativist shift, as Mm -hmm. well as uh, promotion of the idea of a new shining India. And the contemporary turn towards a hyper-nationalist cinema. In Turkey, likewise, you chart the rise of the Dizzy um, against the history of the Ottoman Empire, the modern identity politics of Kemalism, and now a neo-Ottoman revival, uh, or the genesis of South Korean K-pop as a rebuttal to North Korea. Mm -hmm. So talk about this intersection that you see between culture, politics, and history. I think that we we come to culture incredibly innocently. Uh, People sit down in a movie theater imagining that they're just being entertained, but not that they're being instructed. And of course, both both are true. You are being entertained, but it's it's layered and laced with political messages. 
Um, one only has to watch Hollywood films from 2001 till now to know how much of the political project of America is embedded in films like The Hurt Locker, American Sniper, Zero Dark Thirty. And to boot, you know, Zero Dark Thirty, which is, of course, a malicious film which claims that torture was instrumental in finding Bin Laden, which it absolutely was not. Um, it's so revealing to me that the Oscar for Zero Dark Thirty was presented by Michelle Obama, live from White House telecast. So they're not even particularly trying to hide the political messages of the industry, um, but yet we continue to ignore them. And since going out with New Kings of the World, people have asked me if you know the cultural industries of India or Turkey or Korea are more innocent, and certainly not. No, no cultural industry is going to be innocent. It's going to put forward its own uh, arm of soft power. And I think we as watchers have to be more discerning about what we're absorbing, um, what it's trying to tell us, and why it's trying to tell us that. Um, you also offer an insightful introduction of the popularity, for example, of Bollywood films in the world. Mm -hmm. For example, in China, Japan, the Middle East, Europe, Africa, Latin America. In Peru, for example, they love boot polish, something yes. I didn't know at all. <laughs> and what I didn't know, even though I've taught Mother India many times, is that they play Mother India on Mother's Day. Yes. Um, they, there are Bollywood fan clubs, most of them you know, run by low-waged earners, mm -hmm. that are, as you say, run like the West Side Story minus the <laughs> knives. So you refer very rightly to Bollywood as a soft power. Mm. What do you mean by that? Hmm. And what does Bollywood offer to people outside India? Well, Bollywood has always been very savvy at presenting um, an idealized image of India, not just to the world, but, but to itself. So the India contained in Bollywood films is an India, even if we look at the films of the 1970s where you know inequality and corruption was addressed, it's still an India of, of justice at the end, of the possibility of justice, it reflects the nationalism that, that Indians feel. They are very proud of their country. They're very nationalistic people. And it, it has been very skillful in presenting India as, as a modern country, um, a striving country, a successful country. Pakistan, for example, has been far less successful at presenting an idealized image of itself to the world, even though Pakistani television dramas are, are widely considered to be sophisticated and, and very nuanced. They haven't really gone full force in the way that, that Bollywood has. So Bollywood, like all industries, is a fantasy. It's the creation of a fantasy. And you see certainly in the films of today the weaponization of that fantasy. Now the fantasy has teeth and guns and rocket launchers. Um, but they, they have been um, they've been incredibly successful in, in reaching out to the dispossessed of the world, to people who don't see themselves reflected in Western culture, by addressing the tensions of, of modern life. And again, I'm speaking of pre-1990s films. Um, the films of the 1990s don't address anything except the tensions of having as much as you can have. And, and that's really what people responded to in Peru. You mentioned Mother India. It was in the 1950s, 60s, that they were watching Mother India during Mother's Day. And, and also during Holy Week, when it was considered incorrect to go to the cinema to have a good time, you, you went to suffer, to be uh, cognizant of the suffering of Christ. And they went to watch Bollywood movies during that week, not, not Hollywood. Yeah, and you also talk, talk about the ways in which you know, Bollywood refers to, Bollywood is structured around family values mm -hmm. and 
the whole idea of sacrifice, you know, and there isn't, you know, too much sex and kissing and people feel safe watching those films. But, you know, that's changing already as we sit here, that's changed in the film. So um, your listeners, I'm sure, will be uh, fans of films like Gully Boy, let's say. Um, which is India's entry to the Oscars. I think Gully Boy is actually a very good film because it recalls um, that attractive quality from the 1970s, that that the gaze of the camera was on the invisible. I think Gully Boy is the first film I've seen in a long time that does that well. But still it doesn't look at the Muslim question. It has problems. It doesn't address the Muslim question Mm head-on, just peripherally. You know, there's a sideways moment where... where, um, Gully Boy, the MC, goes to his friend's house and his, fa- his father, his friend's father, who's a drunk, um, throws out a couple of Muslim slurs. But it's not addressed directly, you're absolutely right. But still, I think it's gone further than recent films have. And in Gully Boy, already, there's quite a bit of the kissing and, and um, you know, the, the romantic relation has been sexualized in Bollywood already. So I wonder, as they keep going down that path, will it put off? audiences and I suspect it it might make them uncomfortable but it looks as though Bollywood is looking not at the low wage earners of Peru but uh, audiences in Seattle, London, New York. That's true so you know it's the and as you put it very rightly in your book um, you know the 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 Bollywood or the distribution of Bollywood within the diaspora is a Mm. big money earner. Yes huge. yeah, and um, and of course, talking about you know the slow emergence of sexuality, um, there are these you know uh, the item girls, item yeah. numbers, and um, you know wearing very suggestive suggestive clothes. Um, but yet, even though the new Bollywood that you refer to, the nineteen nineties, you know, which is very much encapsulated by someone like and um, a role that you know he sees uh, someone like Shah Rukh Khan sees himself as developing. The you know the the role of the NRI mm-hmm. hero, he still resonates with the Peruvians. He does, and and it's fascinating, you know, and the working class Peruvians and the indigenous populations. Oh, yeah, the the white upper class uh, segment of Peru has no idea that Bollywood is popular in their country. People were shocked when I told them that. And when I went to meet the people who formed these fan clubs, they were, I mean, there was not one white person there. They were all indigenous Peruvians. But, of course, like all romances, they were blind to certain realities. So uh, the nationalistic question in Bollywood films, the fact that these are not films of dissent or of quarreling with power, was not something that they really um, addressed in their fan clubs or in their fandom. The other thing I found really interesting is that many, many times I was told that people liked to watch Bollywood films because they saw themselves reflected in the films. And I always said, well, you know, there is a big issue of colorism in Bollywood. You know, the fair and lovely, fair and handsome. I mean, every star you can think of has been advertising skin lightening creams. And why would they know that? Because they are not watching Indian films on Indian satellite channels. They're not reading Stardust or things like that. Um, But on the other hand, they also seemed uninterested. They didn't want to know that side of it. They wanted to focus on what was hopeful, the idea that someone with brown skin can be a modern person while maintaining traditional values. And not just that, but that he might be respected in the world. You know, that he might not have to wait at lines at the airport, that he might breeze through, that he might have a private plane, that he might be a captain of industry. Mm -hmm. That overshadowed the the negative side. 
Right. And also the fact that the entire film is structured around, oh, the film gives centrality to the brown person. The brown person occupies the central narrative. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. That you are the hero of yeah. your own story. Yeah. And as you mentioned that in the boutique cinemas of Peru, um, you know, the, the indigenous population that trivialized, marginalized, really killed as comic characters. Absolutely. And, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. They're not, you know, it's very difficult for indigenous Peruvians to get roles in films. Um, many of them complain that they are asked to play criminals, that the language used to refer to them is pejorative. And so they have this, this, this connect with Bollywood that they don't have with local films, with even, you might say, South American films, um, and certainly not with Hollywood films. And also, um, Hollywood films are seen by a lot of the people in different parts of the world, different parts of the non-Western world is not adequately developed and, mm. you know, not offering the kind of emotional resonance. And, yes, yeah. uh, many people told me that, you know, they found Hollywood cold, yeah. that it had no feeling. Slick but cold. Slick but cold, exactly. And it's true if you're watching films like The Joker or Avengers, you know, what does that say to the, to the difficulty of, of maintaining good, dignified lives with essentially the force of the world against you? It doesn't really say very much. That's right, yeah. Talk about uh, the popularity of um, the other two Khans, Amir Khan <laughs> and Salman Khan. Well, they were popular. They had their own fan bases. I mean, I wasn't looking at their fans necessarily. But I think they all represent something different. You know, Salman is the muscular Khan. He's the action hero. He uh, can fight anyone, uh, can be anything, can do anything sort of figure. And, you know, he, I think he resonates probably more with Muslims, although perhaps not anymore, since he's been pretty, pretty pathetic in his <laughs> groveling towards the state. And Amir exists in this vaunted artistic elite space. And, you know, even when I was in Turkey looking at Dizzy, many people there happened to be Amir Khan fans. And they saw him as a a kind of leader in artistic independent cinema, which of course is ridiculous when you think that it's actually blockbuster Bollywood films. But Shahrukh kind of transcends all these spaces. Shahrukh is, is Shahrukh occupies this odd, hopeful space that doesn't seem connected to any reality. He's the person who can cross between can do anything, muscularity, and artistic sensitivity and compassionate fraternity. He, he's a kind of, I don't know, arc that, that just goes across experience and place in a really unusual way. And, you know, I would have said that in the old days, even though he was the face of neoliberal cinema, as, as India was, you know, reimagining itself in an ultra-capitalistic world, he never put off people who had no hopes of attaining that kind of wealth or possibility. He encouraged them. And that's not something you hear about Amir. That's not something you hear about Salman either. Mm, that's interesting because you, you do um, allude to all of these points by talking about the ways in which you know, his fame hasn't diminished. Mm -hmm. He continues to be the heartthrob. Mm -hmm. You know, he's in his 50s. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, he's very interestingly combines modernity with tradition, mm -hmm. peddling yuppie NRI dreams mm -hmm. and, uh, but not uh, peddling NRI dreams, even for those who can't attain the, you know, the, yeah. the success and the, the status, the, the status that he has. But then he, 
he becomes you know this poster boy poster child for those yeah you know, who, who want those kind who want to sort of dream those kind of dreams but at the same time he's not the working class no. angry young man that Bachchan represented no he's not the Dalit no. that very few Bollywood actors would represent you know there are only a couple of films yeah you know, Fandry and um, Sairad, where you have Dalit centrality mm-hmm. in a film like Masan. Mm-hmm. He's not a peasant like mm-hmm. Amir Khan is in Lagan. He's yeah. not. And still he, he resonates. But, and of course, he speaks to the poor and everything. But maybe... Yeah, it's interesting. As you said, he, he doesn't play disenfranchised characters. You know, he, by his own um, definition, has played these kind of yuppie characters who doesn't need to beat you on the streets. He can beat you in the stock market. But I think the character of Shah Rukh is an inclu- he has an inclusive character. And um, an Indian film critic said to me when I uh, in the process of research that you know he he personifies that gesture he's known for. You know that arms open wide to the, the world. Inclusivity. <laughs> exactly. Even though he might be the multinational banker he is still the multinational banker who you might potentially one day grow up to be even though that status is otherwise cut off um he's an everyman Sharok could be your neighbor your brother your friend your your friend's brother and and so he embodies hope in a, in a weird sense he embodies a hope that you can be him uh he he i think is unlike let's say Salman, who is a, a Sylvester Stallone-ish kind of character, you know, beefed up. Even though Shah Rukh has adopted that kind of physical form as the years have gone by, um, he's, you can still recognize yourself in him. You, you can recognize um, people you love in him. And, and that's accidental. I mean, I don't think Shah Rukh has put that on. I think it was a case of right time, right film, right person. And people who are his fans will watch him in anything. They will watch him read the phone book, you know. They would watch him as a villain and cheer him on. They watch him as a... Like in Bazigar. Like in Bazigar. And, you know, Salman and Amir were offered the role in Bazigar, the main role, and both of them turned it down. And Salman's father thought it was too negative for his son. But yet, Shahrukh was not punished for Bazigar. He was celebrated. People cheered him on, you know, flinging girlfriends off of buildings in Bazigar. Um, and somehow he's managed to do that over, you know, 20 plus years in his career. That's right. And so, um, and I'm quoting him from mm. your book where he says that he was able to bring some badness and goodness and <laughs> yeah. goodness and badness. <laughs> yeah. And people know that he's like a safe baddie. He'll, he'll be bad, but there's only so much. You know, yes, you can trust him. Only so far he'll go. You can trust him. Even yeah. if he's a bad guy, he's not going to be that bad. No. That's what he no. told me. And it's true in a way. It is. He's not a chilling character. Um, even even when he plays chilling roles, there's something sympathetic about him. Um, I guess the most recent film that he did that fits this is Raïs. You know, even where he's a sort of gangster, he's an honorable gangster at the end. Even the policeman chasing him is forced to admit that he embodies a certain kind of dignity. What was really fascinating to learn, and which is why I think your book is absolutely fantastic and so in, in informative, he said there are these sick women, a cancer patient who got five years of, who managed to get ex, five extra years of her life. Yes. And she thought that she, in her previous life, she was probably his mother. So, so women are not relating to him only as uh, a possible love interest, That's right. um, but not embodied by him, but someone like him that they probably couldn't get in their, when they were younger or something like that. Uh, and how 
mothers are naming their newborn yeah. based on history. It's just like really interesting. Well, thank you. That's yeah, that's very interesting. That for me was a real learning experience, actually. And and the woman you refer to is um, her name is Violetta. And at the time I met her, she was seventy-two, recently widowed, recovering from cancer. And it was Sharok that she said gave her this lease on life. And I think exactly what she says speaks to what we were just saying, that Sharok, you know, is a son to her. Um, another woman who was a member, a fan club member, she was a part of Sharok Khan Universe, which is the biggest fan club, I think. It's, it's got over, SRKU. SRKU, it's got over 4 million members on oh my God. across its platforms. Um, it's run in this kind of multi-culti way, so the president of SRKU is a young man from the Maldives. Um, you know, his second in command is another young man who lives in, in America who came as a student. And, and they've got these branches everywhere. And some, someone else, a, a woman called Marlid, who named her son after Shahrukh's son, said to me, she said, you know, I don't see him as a man to be with, but as a man to admire. So, so he, he really transcends these limitations that the rest of the world has to manage. And and they get all that from his films. I'm not sure how much of it is connected to his real life or his real persona. I'm not quite sure they're interested in that either. I think what they respond to is that this is a person who has consistently embodied values that they seek out in their life, that they find wanting in their societies and their work. And here is this person who, no matter what he does, somehow always represents traditional morality, who will always side on the side of traditional morality of family values. And in spite of being modern and secular. And well, in spite of, and, and that's what they respond to, you know, in, in, in Peru, at least in Lima, you don't really see people walking around in their native dress the way you do in India or Pakistan, where to wear shalwar kameez or a sari is perfectly ordinary and isn't at odds with wearing jeans one day or the next. And, and a lot of people, and especially women, said to me, you know, we'd, we'd like to do that. But if we do that, we're seen as backwards. We're seen as campesinas, you know, we're seen as, as peasants. But they can do it in Bollywood, and, and it was something they aspire to. And one of the strangest moments for me writing New Kings of the world was to be in a park in Lima and to be accosted by these little girls who, <laughs> who came up to me. They were part of a Bollywood dance group, and they came up to me and said, we have to talk to you privately. And I said, yes, okay. And I, I went out with them out to the corner. And we're talking in a mix of like English, Spanish, you know, we're sign language. And they wanted to know urgently if I'd been to India. And when I said yes, they said, they're sort of hyperventilated and said, tell us everything. What's it like? What does it look like? What does it smell like? Because they imagined it the way, you know, my generation imagined Hollywood <laughs> as this place of impossible freedoms and luxury and glamour. And, and they really wanted to know, what do people wear? How do they, is it like the movies? And it was sort of heartbreaking to tell people that, no, it's not like the movies at all. In fact, Lima in that park was more like the movies than anywhere I've been in India. Um, but even when I would try to break it to them that, no, it was like any real place on earth. It had suffering and homelessness and difficulty. They were like, yeah, okay, but what about Bombay? <laughs> Bombay must be above that. And it was really difficult to tell them that Bombay is, in fact, that's really so visible in Bombay, more than in a lot of other places. That's right. Um, so, um, and I think what is 
also very interesting to learn from your book is about the ways in which Shahrukh Khan himself is able to distinguish between himself as a human being. And he says, well, I'm pretty ordinary. I'm mm-hmm. below average. Am I right in saying he says? He says, I'm okay. I'm, I'm just okay. about okay. Just about okay. Yeah. But not below average. Just about okay. But at the same time, he sees the product that's made out of him. Yeah. You know, so he sees himself as an object that's commodified. Yeah. He said, I just turn up, put this makeup on, yeah. and I go and do my lines. Yeah. You know, and then I perform. Yeah. And then I'll leave it to this entire industry to make this Shah Rukh Khan as a yeah. commodity. Yeah. He was pretty surprised. When I met him, it was 2017, and I told him that I was going to Peru next. And even he was surprised. Peru. You know, why Peru? And I said, we well, are really big in Peru. And he was a bit taken aback by that. Um, I, I, think, I think celebrity is so strange, and fame is so awkward and uncomfortable that, you know, if you're famous and, and you're half a thinking person, you, you can only be made uncomfortable by it. And I think he, he does have a discomfort. I, I think he's as confused by it as anyone else, while at the same time never given space away from it. So when I interviewed him, he was shooting an Egyptian prank show to be aired on a Middle Eastern channel across Dubai and Abu Dhabi. And the film crew, there was nobody South Asian there. The film crew were all Tunisian, Lebanese, Moroccan men. And during filming, they were all professional, holding mics and, you know. And the moment the cameras switched off, they became like teenage girls. They were sort of screaming and crying and trying to touch him. And it it, it was bizarre to see, actually. (laughs) And I think somewhere he says that uh, if I'm able to fulfill an unmet need in someone, and if it helps them by connecting with me, and even if they say, can I touch you? Yeah. <laughs> if it helps them, why not? Yeah, he does say that. I think he's quite generous in that sense. He has a reflexive ability to take pictures and shake hands. Like He has to do it so often. I think it becomes reflexive the way breathing is to the rest of us. But at the same time, it's crushing. He said to me as well that you know his family doesn't like to go out for dinner with him because he's going to spend half of that dinner taking pictures and shaking hands. But that he can't go out for dinner without doing that. You know, he feels that it's a duty in a way, it's a part of people's lives. Mm-hmm. I'd like to move over to talking about Turkish mm-hmm. disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious to know, um, you know, how did you explain their popularity? <laughs> I, you know, to me, they were the most incredible of the three. I was really blown away by them, actually, because I always knew that they existed. I mean, I, I remember being in Karachi when Mera Sultan, the Urdu-dubbed version of Magnificent Century, was on air. And I wasn't watching it, but I noticed that I couldn't find anyone during the hours it was on TV. It was hard to get things done in those hours because people were just captive to this show. But they are very sophisticated products at the end. So whereas Bollywood is quite jingoistic now, but has always been nationalistic, you know, there's always an Indian flag, there's always declarations of patriotism, there's always, you know, uh, somebody ready to say Jai Hind to whatever, whether it's a fellow army officer or a judge or... um, Turks who are as nationalistic, as proud of their country as Indians, don't do that. Even in a century, the magnificent century. No, you know, the only time I saw was in the military shows, which are, that has it. 
But otherwise, there are not posters of Atatürk on every wall, which of course there are in Turkey. You can't drive down a street in Istanbul without seeing billboards and photos and um, flags. That isn't reflected in the films. They are really, they could be anywhere. So they're shot exclusively in Turkey, um, whether Istanbul or, or the coast. Unlike Bollywood, they're not going to Prague and Geneva and London to shoot. They're shooting at home. They're very proud of home. But at the same time, the cityscapes are modern. They could be anywhere. You could be in Seattle. You could be in Istanbul. What do you know? And the protagonists could be anyone, in a sense. They are dark hair, light hair, you know, green eyes, brown eyes. And actually, they're more interesting in terms of class, how class is shown. So whereas the Bollywood film is about the bigum, you know, the bigger might have a kind moment with her servant. You don't really see the domestic stuff in Bollywood films anymore. That's a thing of the past. Monsoon Wedding did a little bit of that. A little bit. That's Sent- still 20 years ago. Of course. 20 yes. years old. So in, in, in the films, let's say, of the 2000s, I'm, I'm, I would be hard-pressed to find one. Of course, I meant Monsoon Wedding was the only one. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> and that was, yes, you're right. That yeah. was a beautiful mm-hmm. part of the storyline. Yeah. But... Um, Aside from Monsoon Wedding, in the older films, you might have had a sympathetic moment with the ayah or something like that. But in the Turkish dizzy, the ayah might be the heroine of, of the entire show. Um, but it is about a slave girl becoming yes, a queen. Yes, yeah. it is. It is. But let's even say that she becomes a queen. But there are shows where the slave girl, you know, would essentially stay the slave girl and still be the heroine. But still has the agency. Still has yeah. the agency. Still and centrality of character. Absolutely. The camera gazes on her. You know, she's allowed her own storyline. Um, she's allowed freedom to maneuver within that storyline. So in that sense, they're really quite exciting. And I think that accounts for a lot of their popularity. And again, they're, they're very glossy. The production value is very high. But the values are traditional. And they're less racy than Bollywood today. So today, Bollywood has gone really suggestive. I mean, you know, even 10 years ago, there were Bollywood actors who might kiss in a scene and Bollywood actors who just didn't. Now, it kind of looks like they all might. Whereas in the Turkish shows, they're really slow burning when it comes to romantic relationships. And that adds to their tension. It really makes them gripping because you're just on the edge of your seat wondering when this love story is ever going to progress. I think you mentioned how you had to wait like 52 episodes before the first kiss happens. <laughs> yeah. And there's so many shows that you have to wait for that. So um, there's a show called What is Fatma Girl's Fault, which is an older show, but it's one, it's one of the popular ones. And I mean, it's 53 episodes uh, by the time, you know, the love story in that show is expressed. And and so I, when I was watching Turkish Dizzy, I found myself pulled into them without wanting to be. And essentially, you, you have to put it down to the, to the nuance of the scripts because a script has to be well-written to keep you watching two hours and 20 minutes an episode and still wanting more. That's right. And um, while it's really interesting to learn that um, they are articulated in ways that are traditional, very little sensuality, it's still uh, the magnificent century, mm-hmm. if I'm right, is can equated with Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Although it's really quite unlike Game of Thrones in that there's no nudity, you know, there's no sort of horrific scenes, um, uh, you know, concerning rape and and, uh, there's no orgies. There's none of that sort of stuff in Magnificent Century. I guess, how how would it be compared, really, that it's, that, that there are battles, the battle scenes are kind of silly looking in Magnificent Century. 
Um, again, it's an older show, so they've, their their production value has gone up. Ertegrul would be would be probably a better comparison, even though again there's no nudity, but the battle scenes in Ertegrul are, are are better done than Magnificent Centuries were. There is also this uh, Forbidden Love. Yes. Yeah. Forbidden Love is based on a Turkish literary classic, and uh, it it's the story of obviously a forbidden love, but everybody in the show essentially has some kind of forbidden love, <laughs> down to, you know, the the driver and uh, someone in the house, the governess and the employer, the cousin and another cousin, and then, of course, the actual forbidden love couple of the title. And it, it's, it's actually, it's a really well done show. Um, it's not what we would think of when we think of telenovelas or American soap operas, when every episode somebody has an illegitimate child and somebody finds out their mother is not their mother but their aunt. It doesn't have that kind of awkward scandal in it. So it's very much grounded in this whole sort of framework of morality and ethical responsibility exactly. towards the self and the other. And doing the right thing, wanting to do the right thing, but perhaps being pulled against the right thing. And it, it, it is interesting, you know, the Forbidden Love has a, a young woman marrying an older man. And it's unclear, and maybe we bring our own Western-tinged sensibilities um, to the idea thinking, does she really love him, or is she doing it for money? And as far as she shows us in every episode, she does love him. But life is hard. <laughs> and yeah. sometimes you're pulled in directions you don't want to be. Yeah, and I think the whole thing about the narrative is that it's grounded in family relations, mm -hmm. and there are these external forces that are acting upon people that are beyond their controls, and they're shaping their lives inadvertently. Exactly. Right. Exactly. But but the themes are how to do the right thing. The themes are not how to break my father's company up so I can take it over in a hostile bid. You know, they are really they're really about um, the difficulty of navigating modern life. And, and all its turbulence. So while it's interesting to know that the disease are shot in mm. Turkey, mm. they have a lot of appeal outside the country. They have a lot of appeal um, in South Asia. They're very big in Eastern Europe. They're very big in South America. They've traveled really widely. The only place they haven't really hit is the English-speaking world. And when I was in Istanbul and, and would ask why that is, I was told, Essentially, that there were two reasons. Number one, that English-speaking audiences don't like to read subtitles. They might do it for a film, or they might do it for a half-an-hour show, but they're not going to do it for two hours and a half every night and every night of the week. I think there's something to that. That's true. You know, even um, Casa del Papel and Narcos and things like that. I mean, they're much shorter, 40 minutes or, or an hour. And second, that, that there is a discomfort with these products because they're coming out of the Muslim world. And there's a discomfort of how to deal with that, you know, where you are suddenly faced with yourself as the enemy, as the outsider. Obviously, that's not true in shows like Forbidden Love. But if you're looking at Magnificent Century, yes, the bad guys are the Vatican. The bad guys are European kings and queens. Um, that's also true for shows like Ertegrul. Um, which shows, you know, the beginning of what becomes the Ottoman Empire, essentially defeating the Byzantines. 
And I think they were quite perceptive to notice that in Istanbul. I think they're right. They also mentioned that they're hugely popular among the Syrian refugees in Lebanon. Yes, that's partially because when they were released into the Middle East, um, the channel that released them made the decision to dub the shows into the Syrian Arabic dialect. Now, if they had dubbed them into the Saudi Arabic dialect or the Iraqi Arabic dialect, I think they would have been less popular. Syria also is a country that before the war um, had a lot of theater graduates, um, people who had higher education in theater studies and acting. Um, they were considered an artistic center of the Arab world and were known for their television dramas, their theater, their satire. So it's a highly educated audience in terms of the arts. And a lot of the dubbing was actually done in Damascus. Um, we can conclude this conversation okay. by your talking about okay. K-pop. Yes. Um, in particular, when the way you put it, you know, it's a perfect example of glocalization. You know, it's borrowed from the West, Koreanized, localized, and re-exported back to the West, even though, you know, and claiming to sound original. So Korea is the, uh, the great example, I think, of all this, because this is a country that uh, decides to rebuild its economy after the Asian financial crisis of 1997 by focusing on the culture industries. Um, President Kim Dae-jung decides that since they can't pursue military technology because of defense pacts with America, they've got no arable land, no natural resources, um, except ginseng, obviously, that what he's going to do is put all their efforts into the culture industries because all they need is talent and time. And what they do is they, as you said, they, they do this thing called glocalization, which is to take Western tempo and, and music and then to Koreanize it by speeding it up. That's what makes K-pop so dancey and so happy sounding and so energetic, just that it's faster. And Korean, like English, is a syllabic language. So even though you don't know what they're saying, you can sing along with it. Whereas to sing along to Mandarin would be much harder because of the intonations and the stresses. And then strategically, because this is an industry with its eye firmly on the market, they place um, English words strategically, again, not by accident, in all the songs. So there is something for you to really hold on to and, and scream in the chorus. And like in Blackpink. Like in all of them, yeah, like in Blackpink, like in BTS. There'll always be one or two words. And I've noticed when I was listening to a lot of K-pop songs, even if they're not English words, sometimes they sound like it. So you're singing along with what you think is an English word. But it's Korean, we just have no clue. And um, they've taken, you know, Western-style choreography, Western-style dance videos, and just done them bigger and better and faster and stronger. Do you think it'll continue, or is it is China going to take over? I think China's the threat um, behind all these industries. I think China, you know, a lot of Chinese money is in Hollywood studios at the moment. That's not because they love Hollywood films, that's because they're learning. Once they learn, they're going to leave and they're going to do it bigger and better. And we'll see. I mean, I think they haven't broken through yet. But I think the question is, will they break through the world or will all of us want to go to China and break through China? Okay, well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. And we're also delighted that you took time to come to Seattle.